It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 421 for December 7th, 2014. This week, Microsoft has just released a new full build for Windows 10. You might be thinking warm, fuzzy thoughts this time of year, but crooks are not. In short circuits, I was surprised recently when I found out how much space system restore files were consuming on the computer's C drive. When something went wrong with the Nexus 7 tablet, Google support did exactly what it's supposed to do. And if you have a smartphone, WePlan will help you understand what's using the bulk of your data plan. I'm keeping an eye on Windows 10, but it's a challenge because development isn't far enough along for me to chance installing it on even a secondary computer such as a notebook that gets a fair amount of use. As a result, Windows 10 is installed only on an older 32-bit notebook that had all but been retired. And because I don't get it out very often, there's always a substantial delay when I do because it needs to download and install lots of updates and sometimes even complete new builds. Microsoft is continuing its vision of using a single operating system across multiple platforms. Phones, tablets, hybrids, notebooks, desktops, and servers. Even though my smartphone and most of the tablets I use are Android devices, I like Microsoft's approach. I think consumers will appreciate having a similar interface on various devices, too. Microsoft also has plans to create a single Windows store for all Windows devices. Microsoft says this will offer tremendous benefits for commercial software developers, enabling them to offer universal Windows apps that can be used across phone, tablet, and PC form factors. For organizations, the Unified Store will also offer a new web-based portal that will allow IT administrators to browse the app catalog and acquire apps in bulk. I mentioned lots of updates and occasional new builds. In late November, a new build was released for members of the Windows Insider program, and it was posted to the Slow Ring. More about that in a moment. You probably need special connections with Microsoft, a secret handshake, and a decoder ring to be part of the Insider program, right? Well, no. Anybody can sign up. Just keep in mind the myriad warnings for Microsoft not to install Windows 10 Preview on a production system. In other words, don't install it on any computer that contains important data or serves critical functions. On November 24th, Microsoft made build 9879 ISO images available for download via the Windows Insider Program website. And they also released a hotfix package via Windows Update to address issues seen in this build. An ISO and a hotfix, same day. That's why you don't want the preview version of the operating system on a computer you depend on. All of this is typical in early-stage development, which is exactly where Windows 10 is right now. You'll see a screenshot on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows a bit of a problem with typefaces. The typeface problem was temporary. Restarting the computer wasn't sufficient to resolve the issue, but following an additional update a few days later, readability was restored. Now, it's worth noting that this problem affected only the Metro or modern applications, not the basic Windows desktop. Everything was just fine there. 
Software development is complicated, and operating system development is, at least an order of magnitude, more complicated. Microsoft uses what's called ring progression. A new version of the operating system with all the new work checked in since the last build is compiled every day. This build is sent to what Microsoft calls the canary ring. That's still a long way from anything that anyone outside the company will see. Only those members of the internal operating systems group will ever see the canary build. Once the Canary build has been validated as stable enough to be used by more people, note, stable enough to be used by more people, not stable, stable enough. Once that happens, it's pushed out to all of the operations systems group. And once OSG validates the build, it goes to the Windows Insiders ring. Microsoft provided a picture of this process. You'll see it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. But now there's a new ring, and it's called Slow. Microsoft insiders can decide whether they want to receive updates on the Windows Insider's Fast Ring or the Windows Insider's Slow Ring. By default, all Windows Insiders are in the Slow Ring. That's probably where you want to be if you're in this program. But those who are really adventurous and want to see builds as soon as possible can move to the Fast Ring. Then they'll receive the update the first day it's available. Now that also exposes them to problems that might be present in the new release. Microsoft's Gabe All describes the difference this way. If you want to wait a bit and let others find any gotchas so the community gets caught up with known issues and workarounds, then you want to stay in the slow ring. Build 9879 is a full build that is installed as an in-place upgrade. That means the process will take longer than the basic update, and it also means that users will see all of the installing your apps screens once again. This is because the account will be reprovisioned during the upgrade. So why not just put Windows 10 Preview on a production machine? Well, here are some bugs that were found in 9879. In some cases, you get a black screen when you try to log in or unlock. The only option is to hold the power button down to force a hard reboot. Or you'll be unable to connect to the distributed file system network locations. Now, both of those were fixed by a hotfix. Several other issues are what are called known bugs. In other words, the developers know they're there, they're working on them, but they're not going to be corrected until later. Some of the examples of these are that some systems may see disk consumption grow by 20 gigabytes or more due to a driver install duplication. On systems with low disk space, that could block the setup and cause a rollback to the previous build. Also, if you have Skype or you use the music app, the calls will disconnect or the music stops playing if you minimize the apps. And there are several known issues with screen sharing in Link. Those three aren't going to be fixed until later. But there's good news. Microsoft has announced several improvements in this build, including OneDrive improvements. The process OneDrive uses to sync files in this build has been changed. In Windows 8.1, the system uses placeholders on a PC to represent files that are stored on OneDrive. People had to learn the difference between what files were available online, the placeholders in other words, versus what was available offline, those physically on the computer. And that was confusing. Users would expect that any files seen in File Explorer would be available offline, and sometimes they weren't. For Windows 10, OneDrive will use what's called Selective Sync, and that means users will choose the files that should be synced to the PC, and what you see in Windows Explorer will really be present. Internet Explorer has gotten some improvements. You probably know that I use Internet Explorer only when I must, 
but it is still the most commonly used browser because it comes with Windows. Improvements are welcome. A new rendering engine will power the next version of the browser, and Microsoft's Internet Explorer team has enabled this new interoperability-focused Edge rendering engine for 10% of Windows insiders. Those who see sites that don't work properly with Internet Explorer can report them, and the developers will work on solving the problem. This latest build also adds support for MKV files. MKV is a flexible open standard video file format. It has become popular for high-definition video on the Internet. The MKV container can include video, audio, and features such as alternate audio tracks, multilingual subtitles, and chapter points, as well as metadata, including cover art, ratings, and descriptions. MKV offers a rich media experience, and Build 9860, the previous build, brought native support for the MKV file format. In this build, 9879, Microsoft says the experience is more complete. You can now play MKV files directly from the Windows Media Player, as well as from other desktop and modern apps. The MKV files will show thumbnails and metadata in the File Explorer. The development process seems to be progressing pretty much as expected. Microsoft has not yet announced an expected release date for Windows 10, but it appears to me that the decision to skip Windows 9 was a good one. the season to be jolly and the season that many of us think about charitable giving, that means it's also the season that scam artists are out looking for their best interests. Shopping? Well, Black Friday and Cyber Monday are gone, but crooks are still out there. This is an easy season for crooks because we're all busy, probably feeling a bit pressed for time, distracted, looking for bargains. But it's not a bargain if you get a great price, but the seller never ships the goods. During the holiday, scammer activities increase. Scams may include coupons or customer reward offers from retailers that were hacked this year. These include Target and Home Depot, of course, but there are lots of others. And watch for fake emails, holiday e-cards, or notices about your account or order problems. These are often phishing attempts to get you to click on links that can steal your information or infect your computer. Master carpenters say we should measure twice and cut once. The online version of this is to examine carefully and think twice before clicking any link. If you're traveling, you may want to use Wi-Fi hotspots. Public Wi-Fi is not secure. Using public Wi-Fi is hard to avoid, but it makes you an easy target for hacking your signal and exposing your information bank and credit card information, for example. Protect yourself by using a known, secure Wi-Fi network or virtual private network software on your device. Applications are available for smartphones and tablets that will make any connection secure. My preference has been SurfEasy, which you can license for about $50 a year and use on all of the Android devices you own and also on Windows devices. A free version is also available if you rarely use Wi-Fi hotspots. 
Note, though, that if you have an Android device that has updated itself to version 5 of the operating system, also known as Lollipop, you might encounter some significant problems with SurfEasy, as well as with many similar products. Charitable contributions are good, of course, but thousands of people fall victim to charity scams every year. The best way to avoid a scam is to check the Better Business Bureau's charity website. You can also contact a known charity directly to ensure that the campaign you see is valid and not a scam. It's always a good idea to treat any email that requests a charitable donation with extreme caution. Social media is another area targeted by scammers and identity thieves, especially during the holidays. Oh, and speaking of social media, it's a good idea not to announce you'll be away from home for several days or a week or you're going on vacation out of the country for the next two months. Crooks have a really nasty habit of monitoring social media sites and watching for exactly those kinds of announcements. This is a good time to check passwords, too. Passwords should have at least eight characters, although preferably 15, and they should contain uppercase, lowercase letters, numbers, and symbols. Except for trivial accounts, newspapers, and things like that, every password should be different. And you may want to check with your credit card company and bank to see if they have a mobile app that sends fraud alerts, and if so, install it. When you're ordering online, make sure the URL of the payment site begins with HTTPS before you enter your shipping or payment information. That means it's encrypted. Keep all of your applications and virus protection software up to date on all devices because that reduces the risk of infection or malware. And after all that, huh, happy holidays. short circuits, the primary desktop computer I used displayed an ominous red icon the other day on the C drive. The boot drive is a solid state unit that at 450 gigabytes is relatively small. Still, it was suddenly down to only about 13 gigabytes free. Where did all the space go? The answer involved several big files and reclaiming the space turned out to be easy. There's a screenshot on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows you just what Windows Explorer showed me. I knew that Drive C didn't have enough programs installed to have consumed almost all the space on the drive. The operating system and the installed programs, I estimated, should occupy about half of the space on the drive, and a quick examination of the program files and program files x86 directories confirmed that estimation. There's a free program called WinDurStat that can work its way through all of the drives on a computer, a single drive if you have just one, or even a single directory. I aimed it at the C drive, and what it told me was pretty interesting. System volume information was the culprit. Now perhaps you've noticed a directory called system volume information on your computer, but because it's a hidden system directory, maybe you haven't seen it. And if you have seen it and tried to find out what was inside, your request would have been refused. What's in there mainly consists of system restore point files. 
and I found that for some reason nearly half of the drive had been consumed by these files. Now it's fine to have a few restore points saved, but 220 gigabytes of restore point files seemed a little excessive. Many reference guides suggest keeping about 4 gigabytes of system restore point files. Because programs come and go on my computer pretty frequently, I thought that more than 4 gigabytes would be reasonable, and I decided to cap it at 50 gigabytes. Now that can be done easily by opening the Windows command line with elevated privileges. You right-click and choose Run as Administrator, and then executing this command. VSS admin resize shadow storage slash on equals C colon slash four equals C colon slash max size equals 50 GB. And almost immediately, more than 150 gigabytes of disk space was once again available for my use. But it seemed that Drive C still should have more free space. I ran WinDurstat again and noticed that hyperfile.sys was using more than 60 gigabytes of space. Why? This is an AC-powered system, not a notebook. It's either on or it's off. It doesn't hibernate. Removing hyperfile.sys effectively turns off the hibernation function, so I opened the command line with elevated privileges once again, and this time used this command, powercfg forward slash h off. So that added another 60 gigabytes. But when I ran WinDurstat once again, I found that I had accidentally allowed Adobe Lightroom to store its catalog files on the C drive. Adobe makes this a really easy fix. Just use the Windows Explorer to move the catalog to another drive. I selected drive F, which had more than 1,000 gigabytes of free space. Then I opened Lightroom, which said, Ah! Where's my catalog? And after I pointed Lightroom to the new location, it opened normally. And Windows Explorer no longer shows a red icon next to the C drive. Nexus 7 tablet upgraded itself from version 4.4.4 of the operating system to version 5 a week or so ago. This week I planned to use an open Wi-Fi connection with the tablet, so I enabled SurfEasy. Something went wrong. Possibly an incompatibility between SurfEasy and the latest version of the operating system. Maybe something else entirely. Regardless of the cause, I had a tablet I couldn't use because it rebooted to an error message that said the user interface had stopped. Usually, when something like that happens, the solution involves resetting the device to factory settings. That means all data and apps are going to be removed. Well, the tablet was backed up, but I thought there might be other options, and I opened a chat with a Google support technician. You'll find a transcript of some parts of the chat session as we talked back and forth. The process was surprising in that the technician didn't skip all of the initial steps and immediately suggest using the big red hammer. System reset, in other words. But he also recognized that I understood what he was asking me to do. We worked through several options that involved deleting cached files, and eventually the only remaining options involved the various recovery functions available via the bootloader. 
I misread one of the suggestions and inadvertently skipped the penultimate step and did a system reset. And after that, everything was fine. The next day, I noticed a change in the tablet's performance following the update to version 5 of the operating system, which I like a lot. The Nexus 7 responded very slowly, which I didn't like at all. Following the system reset, performance is good again. So that leads me to believe that the underlying cause of the crash had more to do with the operating system update than with SurfEasy. I'm still not quite willing to give SurfEasy a pass, though, because it still doesn't seem to work exactly right with version 5. Like in the old days when Windows needed to be reinstalled about every 90 to 180 days, maybe Android works better when it's reinstalled regularly. The exercise of setting up the main screen again gave me the opportunity to modify the presentation and, I think, improve it. The main screen now has time and weather information at the top. Remember the milk reminders on the left under the time and weather information. My calendar on the right under time and weather. Three lines of my most commonly used applications. And the action bar that appears on every screen. So sometimes a problem turns out to be more of an opportunity. And sometimes you get to work with a support technician who's really a joy to work with. But that's not quite the end of the story. After Avast's paid backup service restored my files to the Nexus 7, I noticed that all of my ebooks were missing. They were all backed up on the desktop system so I could restore them from there, but based on my background with desktop systems, I had expected files to be backed up by the backup program. As I said to an Avast support technician, a backup that doesn't back up everything isn't much of a backup. I'm sorry, Avast support technician Jacob Vanyo said, but Avast Mobile Backup can back up only your SMS call logs, contacts, images, audio and video files, and also applications installed on your device, APK files. Avast will not back up application data or settings unless it's running in root mode on a rooted phone. It cannot back up your ebooks. So, if you have any data on your Android phone or tablet, it's probably not being backed up. Oh, and rooting? That means you have root access to your device so that it can run the sudo command. Now, whether you pronounce that sudo or sudo, you'll get an argument from those who pronounce it the other way. The name is either a contraction of substitute user do or super user do. And when it's used, it's almost always used in conjunction with credentials for the super user. Spanish publisher of WePlan says it can save more than 50% of your mobile phone bill. I suspect that's a bit of hyperbole, but the concept is interesting. I've downloaded it, and I'll let you know what I think about it in a month or so. At the very least, it would seem that WePlan will provide a clear picture after observing how your device is used for a month. It'll show you exactly which applications are using how much data, and whether the data is on the device's plan, which is metered, or on Wi-Fi, which is essentially free. 
We Plan is available in the Play Store for Android devices and the Apple Store for iOS devices. Initially available in Belgium, Denmark, Finland, Greece, Ireland, Norway, Netherlands, Poland, and Sweden, We Plan is the result of in-depth analysis of telephone tariffs in each of those countries. The company has built a database that includes all 46 plans and companies available there. So, yes, that means it won't yet recommend plans for users in the United States, but installing it will yield insights. In the U.S., the app can guide consumption through alerts, graphs, and statistics so that users can always have control over call, SMS, and Internet usage. The ongoing international launch adds seven Latin American countries, Mexico, Chile, Argentina, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Brazil, and six additional European countries, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, the United Kingdom, France, and Italy. In a second phase to be developed in the coming weeks, the app will be launched in Bulgaria, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Romania, and Turkey. Maybe the U.S. will be in the third wave. But I still think you'll find the information it provides will be interesting and useful. You'll find more information on the WePlan website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.